Well, let's, uh, let's turn to the word for today. You know, there was once a time when the church was sort of the major player in Western society. Uh, in fact, there was a point in uh, the distant past when the church was the primary arbiter of life in the Western civilization. Now, that was hundreds of years ago. It's no longer the case. Uh, and in fact, in many ways, the influence of the church is waning a great deal these days in the, in the life of the culture. And um, while there's still some influence uh, left in places like uh, United States, for the most part, it doesn't feel like the church has the kind of influence that it once had. In many cases, we've been relegated to sort of a very minor role. In some cases, we're looked upon as being more than just a minor role, a nuisance or an obstacle. Uh, and yet it wasn't so long ago that the church was sort of a respected part of the, the culture. And, and because it wasn't so long ago, we still have some of that collective memory of that, of that time. And, and when we look at the position of the church in the society today, we can sometimes become discouraged or disheartened by, by what's going on. But in fact, in the, in the time of the early church, in the time of churches like uh, the early church in Jerusalem or in Ephesus or in Philippi, I mean, those churches existed in cultures that had no Christian influence or heritage whatsoever. Uh, they lived in a totally different kind of a context. In fact, sometimes they lived in, a, in, a, in the kind of a context where there was open hostility towards the church. And the question is this, how did they view themselves in the context of a culture that was, if not anti-Christian, at least utterly had nothing to do with Christianity? How, how did they see themselves? Because that's not only biblical, but that's how we need to see ourselves as the church in our world today. Because in many ways, the church today in Western culture is closer to the church of the, the, the days of the early church than it has been for the last a thousand or more years. And so this is what the Apostle Paul is going to address in this next section of the letter to the Philippians that we've been looking at. In fact, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me back to Philippians chapter 3, the end of the chapter there. And uh, beginning in verse 20, uh, he is going to help us understand how it is that we ought to think of ourselves as the church in the culture around us. You know, the New Testament gives us a number of different metaphors for the church, a number of different ways to see and understand what it means to be the church. Now, one of them is like we're a body, the body of Christ with all these different parts that are necessary to, to function well. Another metaphor that he gives is like we're the bride of Christ. Another metaphor that he gives us is that we're the family of God. We're this, this family uh, walking together. And another place that Peter talks about us being the, the house of God, this this house that God is sort of slowly but surely building, this temple that he is creating. But in this passage, the Apostle Paul uh, lays down a different metaphor, one that is probably much less known in our world as Christians, but that is probably more important than ever that we grasp and understand uh, when it comes to how we relate to the culture around us. So this is what the Apostle Paul writes. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, he says this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, that word citizenship is a Greek word, polituma. Got it, polituma. And it's based on this Greek word. Uh, this word here, the word polis, is the Greek word for city. And it's the, it's the root of all kinds of words in Greek. It's also the root of all kinds of English words. So, for instance, uh, we get the word police from that. We get the word metropolis from it. Uh, the word uh, politician and politics. 
In other words, a polis is a city, is a group of people who walk together. Uh, and, and the word polis sort of speaks to all of those different things that make that group of people function and walk together well. And what Paul is saying here, he takes this word polis and he changes it a little bit so that it's best translated as the word commonwealth or colony. In other words, he's saying that the church is this, this polis, this political organization of people who, who walk together in this community with laws and expectations that the citizens of that community are expected to live. And for we who are followers of Jesus, that, that means that we need to live and, and, and act according to the laws and the expectations of heaven itself. In other words, he says that we as the church are to live like a colony of heaven. Now, these days, the word colony doesn't have a very good meaning, but you have to understand that in those days, for the church of Philippi, this was a, this was a wonderful thing because the church of Philippi was a Roman colony. In other words, even though they lived in, the, in northern Greece, the people of Philippi were actually legally considered citizens of Rome. Uh, they, were, they had all the rights and the obligations of being Roman citizens, and that was highly coveted. And so that meant that they interacted with the culture around them, but they lived as this kind of alternative society, this, this, these citizens of Rome in the midst of the Greek world. And this is the, the metaphor that Paul is drawing on for us as the church. And here's, here's what he says. He's just saying this, that the church ought to live and be an alternate society. In other words, the church is not just a collection of, of, of people who've been forgiven by Jesus, who gather once a week on a Sunday morning for a one-hour meeting. Rather, it's this, this, this community, this group of people. The, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.9 calls us a, a, a holy nation. In other words, this distinct, this separate nation, this, this counterculture, this, this new society in which we live before the world, a, a new way of, of being family, of, of living out family values, of living out business practices, of, of racial reconciliation, of really all of life for the rest of the world to look and say, those people, they live in this sort of alternate society, but they live so differently. And, and if you know, if you've been in the church we don't do that perfectly, but, but when we get it right, it's so beautiful. You know, I, I uh, read uh, about a guy, a pastor named Jeremy Treat, who he visited this church in the slums of Nairobi. In fact, to get to this church, he had to go through these slums where literally sewage ran down the middle of the street. And on either side were these tiny little shacks made out of, made out of mud and, and wood. And, and he said there was all these children playing in the mud right beside the sewage. They were naked because they, they, they didn't have any clothes. And, and he was just kind of overwhelmed as he was walking there. His guide pointed to a 12-year-old girl and said, that girl's being sold as a prostitute. And he's just overwhelmed and, and about to have enough of it when he, he began to hear what they'd been looking for. And, and what he heard was the sound of praise and worship coming from this, really was just a little shack but they went in through the door of this little, this little shack, this little building, and there were 70 people crammed in there, praising and worshiping God, their, their arms lifted. And, and he, he, what he saw, there was such a contrast to the darkness and the misery all, all around him that he'd seen. And, and this is what he writes about that experience. He says, in that impoverished slum, I knew that the kingdom of God had come, not yet in the fullness of God's future promise, but it was there in the midst of the most horrific suffering and brokenness I've ever seen. And, and, and that little church, 
He saw the power of the gospel to transform people's lives, but not just people's individual lives, but through that, through, through that group of people, that community, that, that polis, he, he saw them transforming and impacting the community around them. In other words, he said that group of people didn't just gather from some sort of internal tranquils, you know, serenity, some kind of Buddhist Zen, you know, I'm good with myself and to heck with the rest of the world, but rather with a deep desire to impact the world around them. In fact, he writes this, he says, throughout the day, I heard stories of how these people loved and served others in the community. What I saw in that little shack was a glimpse of the same power that will one day renew all of creation. See, what he found there in that place was a colony of heaven, an alternate society, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in that slum of Nairobi. And, and, and there are different pictures of that. Here's, here's another one. In the 1940s, a couple named Francis and Edith Schaefer went from America to Europe to be missionaries there. But it wasn't long after they got there that Francis Schaefer had a crisis of faith, in part because the, the people that he was working with, uh, the, the, the conservative Orthodox Christians were so lacking in love that he wondered what he was doing there. And, and so he had this crisis of faith. And, and when he came through the other side, he returned to the Orthodox biblical teachings of the scripture. But he set out then to set up, to establish a, a biblical community that, explay, that displayed the power of the kingdom of God at work in people's lives. So, is what he and his wife did. They found a small chalet uh, uh, outside of a small Swiss village in the, in the Alps. And they began a ministry called Labrie. And really how it began is that their daughter was going to university in those days. And uh, she would, every weekend, she would bring home friends uh, from the university who would come for a meal and for walks and for conversation. And, and they began to have these deep, rich conversations about God and life and culture and and, and, and from that, it began to grow. And, and what it turned out is already back in that day, in the 50s and 60s in Europe, the young people were losing faith, not only in the church, but in the idea of universal truth, which meant that they were coming to the place where, where they, they had no basis for moral judgments, no, no foundation for justice or no place to find identity or meaning in life. And, and, and so the Schaefer simply invited them to their home. And they welcomed them in and they treated them with respect and hospitality and they fed them and they began these conversations. And they just listened to them and heard where they were coming from and then quietly but, but openly pointed them back to Jesus. And, and, and over the next 20 years, first hundreds and then thousands of young people, some of the brightest minds of all of Europe came and passed through Labrie. And some of the most unlikely young people that you would ever think ended up giving their life to follow Jesus. And when you would ask them, what is it that caused you to give your life to follow Jesus? They, one of the things they would point to was the unique nature of the community at Labrie. Because you see what they did in that community is that they had this very unique balance of both truth and love, you know, grace and grit in virtually all the other communities they'd been in, either there was all love with his very relativistic view of everything, or there was this strong orthodoxy, but with this kind of attitude that says, you know, if you're the wrong kind of people, you're not really welcome here. But these people, they lived out this kind of community setting, this, this, this place that was so biblical in its orientation that it was both grace and truth. 
And that was so attractive for them. And see, this, that, that Labri, that, that ministry that they started is another example of this colony of heaven, this alternate society. And though it's, it's wildly, and, and, and it is, it's wildly different than the, the church, the community in the slums of Nairobi, right? One is a chalet in the Swiss Alps reaching out to the brightest minds of Europe. And, and the other is a, is a church in a shack in the slums of Nairobi reaching to the poorest of poor of Africa. Totally different. And yet, in many ways, pretty much exactly the same thing. You see, the world would say, you know what we, we need to do? We need to build a, a school for the bright young minds of Europeans and we need to set up a social services center for the poorest and poor of Africa. But instead, God calls for these communities of people in whatever place they find themselves to not only seek to know Jesus deeply, but then to, to live out an alternate society uh, in the context of a community, a life not just for the sake of themselves, but for the sake of others around them, that the kingdom of God would go forward, that people would find Jesus. And see, this is what we're called to be as Ridge Church. This is what God calls us to right here in, in, in Maple Ridge, Pitt Meadows. We're to be this alternate society, this, this polis, this community of people called to live the way that Jesus calls us to do so that we would know him deeper, but also so that the people in our city would flourish and find healing and growth because of what Jesus has done. In fact, this is what Jesus talks about. And this is kind of, I mean, we've talked about this verse regularly around here. Matthew 5, 14, Jesus says this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That word city, that's the word polis. He says, a, a polis, a community of people set apart by the power of God in their lives who are living as this alternate society cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. This is us. This is what God has called us to as the church. Not, not just to come and focus on ourselves and, and don't try to keep the culture away from us. Not, not to be a bunch of spiritual consumers who just come to a weekly buffet of resources. I need this for my spiritual need and I want that to make me feel better. Not to be some sort of political you know, lobby group trying to get the right politician into office so that we can legislate the change of people's hearts through the laws. No, no, we're to be this polis, this community of people, a city on a ridge, a beacon of hope in the world around us. See, th this is the first thing. We, we are to be this alternate society that loves others. That's the call that, that God has for us as a church. But then secondly, we are to be this, this alternate society that lives in light of the resurrection. Here's what he says in verse 21. He says, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In other words, Paul is saying here that this, this alternate society is supposed to live in light of the future. Christians are a people of the future. We live in the present with our eyes set on the future, which means that then we can face the hardship and the struggles and the challenges, and in some cases, the rejection, we can face that with, with grace and with love because our eyes are set on the fact that the resurrection is coming. In the end, this is not the end. In the end, in the end, as Paul says here, 
all things will be subject to Jesus himself. So when the culture changes around us, I mean, we don't lash out in anger and nor do we whimper in fear. Rather, we go forward as this, this community of people living differently because of what Jesus has done in our lives. And that's why Paul says what he does, says next in chapter four, verse one. He says this, therefore, my brothers, therefore, in light of who you've been called to be, he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You know, we are to be this alternate society who loves others, who live in light of the resurrection, but also who stand firm. You know, uh, when we live as this alternate society, then the majority society, the, the broader society begins to put pressure on us to conform to what they're doing. It, that, that just is a natural thing. It's always happened. And, and, and the pressure is to assimilate, to, to leave behind the things we believe and join them. And if we're not willing to do that, at least, at least to be willing to, to drop those things which they consider offensive those things which are not politically correct, those things that they would say leave us on the wrong side of, of history. Parts of the church throughout the past 200 years have, have tried this very thing. I mean, they wanted so desperately to be accepted by the culture around them, to, to find respect in the eyes of the culture around them, that one after another, they've jettisoned all kinds of things, the, the, the belief in the virgin birth, holding to the miracles in the Bible, the inerrancy of scriptures, the, the sanctity of life, sexual ethics. I mean, you, you name it, one thing after another, they have simply abandoned it in hopes that somewhere they would find respect in the eyes of the culture. But they've abandoned so much until literally they become indistinguishable from the culture around them. In fact, uh, we're now 60 or 80 years on from that experiment and, and, the, and the result of those decisions are coming to fruition. For example, one of the, Denominations in Canada in the year 1961 had over 1.3 million members of their church. But because they chose to continually accommodate to the broader pressures of the culture, uh, two years ago they published their own document that said by the year 2040 that church will cease to exist. In, in a little over 60 years they will have gone from 1.3 million members to zero. Apostle Paul says this, stand firm, hold to the scriptures, hold to them even if they're not popular, even if they're hard, even if they cost you something. Hold to who Jesus is, to what God has called us to. Stand firm, otherwise we'll swept, be swept away by the current of our culture. And, and this is why this is important for us as a church, but also for us as individuals. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever been hiking and you come to a, a place where you've got to cross a swift moving river and, you know, maybe it's up to your knees, maybe it's up to your waist. If you've ever tried to do that, you know that current is more powerful than it looks. And you get partway into that river and it's pushing you like crazy. And, and every time you lift your leg to take a step, it sort of knocks you a little off balance. And if you're not careful, I mean, that thing will catch your feet and you'll go under and you'll come up splashing and, and everything sort of everywhere and you're desperately trying to get your feet under you. And it's challenging. And, it, and if it's really bad, you can literally be swept down the river. But if you try to cross that river instead in this group, kind of holding one another, even though it's a little awkward at times, even though you're kind of shuffling along, the strength and the support that's there allows you to get safely across that current. You know, the, the same is true for us as Christians. So often, so often Christians 
They get a little tired of the church. They say, I, I like Jesus. I don't want the church anymore. I, I don't want to be part of that community. It's just a hassle. It's too much trouble. And it's just going to be me and Jesus, a couple of good books in the Bible. But you know, I've watched over years, sometimes good friends, close friends, who, who were strong Christians who chose that route. But the current is just so swift and so strong that eventually they end up either being washed away in that current or, or just struggling so much that their faith is just tepid and weak. It's almost, it's almost better if they just abandon it because it's no different than really the world around them. See, the Christian life is meant to be lived in the context of community. It's meant to be lived together with others. It's so important. But of course, that doesn't mean that living in community is a bed of roses. It's not all just pixie dust and happy thoughts and pink unicorns or, I don't know, whatever that stuff is, right? I mean, if you've been in a church for any amount of time, you know it's not always easy. There's conflict that comes along the way. Even in a church as amazing as the one that Paul is writing to in Philippians here. And that's why this is what he says next in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Apparently, there are these two ladies in the church in Philippi. Euodia and Syntyche and whatever it is they got going, they got some sort of significant conflict going between them. And now Paul writes to the church and he writes specifically to them and he's asked them to please agree in the Lord. And see, so here's the fourth thing that we need to, uh, uh, to kind of continue to focus on uh, as this alternate society. And that's this, we need to uh, seek unity. You know, it's hard it's hard to invite the world around us to come in and say, look, Jesus will change your life. Come on in, join what God is doing here, only to invite them into a community of people that are constantly squabbling and fighting with one another. People say, really? I got enough problems in my life without joining your bunch of problems as well. And the fact of the matter is there's so much pressure on us from the outside to conform to the pressures of the culture around us that if we're constantly fighting and dealing with issues on the inside, it saps our courage, it saps the morale out of us, and it's difficult to move forward with the mission that God has given us. And so what Paul writes here about conflict in the church is, is actually very instructive for us as a church in this day and age. And there's just a number of things you, you need to notice here. And, and here's the first thing. There's, there's conflict in the church. And Paul doesn't panic. You know, this is an amazing church. This is a church who loves one another, who's on mission for Jesus. I mean, Paul can't say enough good things about this church. And yet, they still have, they still have conflict. And sometimes, sometimes Christians get this bizarre, weird notion that somehow there should never be any kind of conflict in the church, that we should just always get along perfectly and happily together. And that's just not the case. I mean, conflict is a human thing. I mean, even a good, healthy marriage or a solid, loving family still has times when there's significant conflict among them. Why? Because they love one another, because they want what's best, and they don't always see eye to eye on what's best. But when the conflict comes, they deal with it. And so, and so Paul says, look, there's conflict in the church. And, and, and that's not a bad thing if it's dealt with. 
Now, it's a problem if there's always conflict. If there's always a problem, that's different. But Paul doesn't light his hair on fire here. He doesn't say, oh, no, there's conflict in the church. Oh, you're not being the church. Rather, he says it rather matter-of-factly. It's an issue. Would you guys please deal with it? It's the first thing to notice. The second thing to notice is that he doesn't ignore it. You know, the opposite to sort of panicking about the conflict in the church is to simply ignore it. And again, there's sometimes as Christians, we have this attitude like we're, we're Christians. We have Jesus in our heart. There, there should be no troubles here. We've got it all together. It's all good. So when there's tensions, we just sort of paper it over. And if those tensions continue to grow, if the crack forms, we just get, you know, good, good paint. And we really put a thick layer of paint over that. And if the crack is more, you know, we look around for a picture and we hang the picture over that thing because we just don't want to deal with the conflict because it's messy. And it's hard. And people sometimes are hurt. But if we fail to do that, you know what happens? It happens all the time. Instead, hurt people, angry people, just quietly leave the church. And everyone says, where'd they go? What happened? And all of the investment that they had and all the energy they put towards the mission and the ministry and all of the relationships simply disappear. And they've got to start all over. And Paul cares more about the unity of the church than he does about papering it all over so everyone feels like it's kind of good and happy. So again, that's why he just simply, matter-of-factly points out that there's this conflict in the church. But then notice the next thing that we, we need to see that he points out here, and that's just the conflict is between two really good, deeply godly people. This isn't a conflict between, you know, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader. This isn't pure light and dark, dark evil. This is the conflict between these two women who both love Jesus deeply and deeply committed and who's serving so faithfully. And you know, it's so, it's so heartbreaking to watch when this happens among believers because, because rarely in the conflict that I've seen in many years of the church, rarely is it, you know, some sort of wolf in sheep's clothes who is just, you know, evil trying to destroy the church. There are those. And I mean, Paul deals very clearly with those right at the beginning of 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 chapter three. uh, He talks about those who have false doctrine. He says, watch out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul isn't scared to go after those who come with false doctrine to destroy the church. But here, here he's talking about two amazing ladies who both love Jesus deeply and I've seen this too often in in my years in ministry. Men and women, uh, you know, two men or two women who in many cases labored side by side very closely for the sake of the gospel. Something happens and a a disagreement forms and it it gets worse. And rather than keeping focused on the issue at hand, they begin to look at one another and make one another the problem. And they begin to see each other as as the enemy. You see, the, the, the issue is the issue, not the person. And, and we're all broken. We all have sin in our lives. And we all have to own whatever part of the problem that is. But we're not enemies. Paul notes that our names are written in the book of life. The people who are in conflict, they both love Jesus deeply. And so here's what he calls them to do. He, he calls them to, in fact, here's what he does. He appoints somebody to mediate the conflict, right? Verse 3, he says this. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. Help these women. Now, who, who that true companion is? I mean, we, we don't really know who that is, but likely it was one of the leaders of the church, a pastor or an elder or a board member. You know, probably it was whoever 
Paul had written this letter to, to read to the church. Now, no, notice what that means. That means that this conflict is not to be adjudicated by the entire church. It's not to be the topic of discussion out in the lobby over coffee and cookies after the service. It's not to be this passionate conversation within some small group that, that spends an hour hashing through some sort of issue. It's not to be, you know, prayer requests that you just try to, you know, get it in there and, and not even long phone calls to somebody trying to get them on one side or the other. Rather, the conflict is to be mediated by a third party, by a spiritual leader who, whose goal is just to see reconciliation happen between these two people who love Jesus deeply. You know, if you hear about a conflict in the church, in our church, you need to know that you're going to get one side of that story. You know why? Because if, if I'm involved in conflict, that's always my, my, my approach. Everybody does that, right? It's like, look, somebody comes to you with a conflict in the church. They're going to tell you, you know, what the other person did and, and why it was wrong. And they're going to emphasize that and they're going to minimize the part that they might have maybe played in it along the way. And not just them, everyone does that. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a legitimate concern. That doesn't mean that there's a real problem. It just means that you're not getting the full picture. So be careful that you don't just take that on and say, yeah, oh man. Instead, what you should do is you should listen and you should sympathize. The hurt is real. The, 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 the issue is legitimate. But then you should pray with them or, or for them. But then you should point them, say, okay, so you need to go. And if you can't sort it out with that person, you need to get somebody, a third party to mediate that, a pastor or a board member or, or a community leader or some mature Christian who doesn't have a dog in the fight, who can simply come and help you find that thing out. But don't take on their offense. Don't take on their grievance. Don't gossip it around the church. Because you see, you see that's just not how it's supposed to be done. We, we need to live together in community. You know, when we live in community, there's always going to be things that we can find that bother us. It just is. And there will be at times significant issues that we need to address. But when that's the case, we need to deal with them. Otherwise, we become like that, that old joke about this, uh, this guy. He got uh, deserted on this desert island, abandoned there. And uh, the rescue boat finally found him after a number of months. And when they arrived, they saw that there was three huts that this man who'd been all alone on the island built. And they said, what are the huts? And he pointed to the first hut. He said, that's my house. And he pointed to the second hut. He said, that's my church. And they said, well, what's this hut? He said, oh, that's the church I used to attend. Right? I mean, there's, there's this simple thing that we always do. We say, I got a problem. I just go to the next place. Conflict flourishes when we lose sight of the eternal. When we lose sight of of the resurrection, when we lose sight of what God is doing among us and what he wants to do through us as this alternate society, this, this community of people, this city on a hill, when we focus too much on what's going on. So please, where there's conflict for you with somebody else at the church or, or, or with the church, with Ridge Church, with the leaders, with, where that's the case, would you please, you know, as best you can, go about dealing it in a biblical way. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's find somebody who can mediate. Let, let's see if we can't solve those things. And I know it's not always easy. I mean, I've been one who's helped mediate conflict. I've been in conflict myself where others have had to mediate it. 
I know it's not easy and there's not always a simple solution. But as much as we can, let's try to do the biblical thing. Let's try to walk together because of what Jesus has done in our lives and and because we're called to be this community of of believers. See, this is the picture. This is the metaphor that the Apostle Paul lays out for the church, for us as the church in relationship to the culture around us. You know, we're not just this collection of Christians who gather on Sunday morning for a one-hour meeting. Instead, we are to be a city on a hill. Instead, we're to be a colony of heaven. Instead, we're to be this alternate society that loves the world around us, that wants to see the world around us flourish, that lives in light of the resurrection and the hope that we have, that stands firm against the pressures of the culture around us to conform to them, and that seeks unity even when there's conflict that happens among us. That's not perfect. Not, Not by any stretch. No one's thinking that this is the case. But when we live the way that God calls us to, there's these glimpses of God's glory. There's these glimpses of what it is that God wants to do in the world as as the people who are changed by Jesus allow him to. So participate. Engage in the kind of biblical community that we want to have around here. Be involved in embodied real relationships with other believers for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in the end, when we live that way, it's for the glory of God that our city might know Jesus. Uh, let, me, let me pray for you. Let me pray for us together. Let's pray. Oh God, we, we come to you today as your people. God, corporately, your people. A city on a hill. In this place, God, in Ridge Church that you've called us to and And God, we thank you for one another. God, we thank you for the strengths and the beauty that that you brought to our church with each person that you have brought into our church. And Father, we thank you that you call us to live differently than the world around us, to live as citizens of heaven, even as we interact fully with the world around us. God, I pray that you'd help us to do that well. God, that's hard. That, that's a tricky thing. And, and Father, there's pressures from the outside and pressures from the inside. But Father, by the work of your spirit within us, God, it becomes so rich and so beautiful and so meaningful. And so God, we pray that you would be with us as a church. God, that you would meld us together. Lord, that where there is conflict, where there are broken relationships, Lord, that you would help us to heal those by the power of your spirit at work in us. Lord, that you would give us courage to, to, to face what we need to change, to, to talk to others, to see that it works out. Father, for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your kingdom, not only in our lives, but in our city. God, so that you would be lifted high. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.